Welcome to Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I am co-hosting today in place with Dave Robson. He's feeling a little under the weather there today, so if you wouldn't mind praying for him, that would be great. And now, does that mean when you're feeling healthy, you're feeling over the weather? I imagine so. I've <laughs> okay. always wondered that. I'm over the weather today. <laughs> I'm, glad. I'm over the weather, too. And the weather here is really weird right now. So, Who ever heard of the word hurricane in Tucson? That's the words that are being thrown around, hurricane. Really? Well, we had a well, we had a, a couple of scares of that maybe four or five years ago. These things tend to happen in cycles, but they can memory hole it just fine. I, I don't think it's a hurricane, like the thing you see from space that looks like a galaxy. <laughs> a galaxy forming <laughs> yeah, on yeah over over, <laughs> over two. I I think that might be overstating it a bit, but very interesting. It's whatever gets clicks. Nasty. Whatever weather. distracts from the president's son's latest crack bender. Uh, <laughs> well, and having said that. Yeah, having said that. Uh, go ahead so, with the introduction. Yeah, we're so glad you've joined us. This is a Reason for Hope. This is a weekday Bible answer program. We live stream every day 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And that's uh, right here uh, in our studio in Tucson, Arizona. We're live streaming from Calvary Christian Fellowship um, of Tucson and there are multiple ways you can join us basically you just join us on the live stream and then you can follow along you can use the chat box you can for example just go to Facebook and catch our live stream there uh, and again you can use the comment section to ask your questions so we live stream to Facebook and you can see that on your screen there uh, if you're listening on the radio and you want to come and join us uh, uh, and actually ask a question question live go to facebook.com and our <clears throat> page is CCF Tucson or you can just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook and find us there. You can also go to YouTube. If you go to YouTube, uh, you can either just search for A Reason for Hope or you can go straight to our YouTube handle, which is youtube.com forward slash at A Reason for Hope 546. Again, um, <clears throat> we replay these uh, this program on a local radio station called Reach Radio. And uh, it, of course, the, the one you hear on the radio is the next day, so it's not live, but if you have happen to hear us on the radio and you want to uh, join us by asking a question, do that. Join us. We also live stream to Rumble. I'm sorry. We also live stream to our website. So if you go to our website, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, which would pop up here in a moment, you can uh, go there. And then if you just go to the Watch Live tab, which is, uh, that's our website right there. If you go to the Watch Live tab, <clears throat> you can actually watch the program live there. And you can also... Uh, use the chat box to ask questions. You can uh, make prayer requests. There's a little button to make prayer requests, so I'd encourage you to take advantage of that if you would like to. And as I said, we um, also archive our episodes onto Rumble, so if you want to uh, go back and look at past episodes on Rumble, just search for A Reason for Hope on Rumble, and we categorize all our questions so if you are searching for a specific question that's dealt with, you can look at the top three questions that we put in the name of each episode. So if you want to go back to our archives and go to Rumble, that would be great. If you're one of those folks that just want to go to the traditional social media platforms, you can do that. <laughs> um, also, if you want to uh, download our app, if you are part of our community, we have a really nifty app that you can download from the iTunes, I'm sorry, the Apple or Google Play Store. and um, on this app, you can not only keep up with current events in our fellowship, uh, as far as Bible studies, services, we have a Wednesday night oasis service where you can uh, go through the book of Ezekiel with our senior pastor. 
And uh, we go, we're a church that teaches book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you want to go through the book of Ezekiel, you can join us online or join us in person or watch it on the app. So check out the app. I can't stress that more. Download the app. And uh, of course, it has a digital Bible where you can leave notes and highlight texts, join chat groups and so much more. So if you want to download that, go right ahead. We also live stream our services to all the Amazon Fire and Roku products. So if you have a Roku device or an Amazon Fire Stick device, you can add us to your channel listing and watch our services there. Now, um, if you want to leave a question but don't want to do so publicly in social media, why don't you just email us too? You can do that at questionsforhope at gmail.com. For those again listening on the radio, questionsforhope, all spelled out with letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. And last but not least, I'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor on X, formerly Twitter. X. On X. X. Sounds inappropriate. Sounds like something Sean Connery would say. <laughs> Join me on X. Can we, can we start calling you Professor X? That'd be funny. If I lose any more hair. Or Pastor you X. May. Pastor, yeah, join Pastor X on X. Uh, join I vouch Pastor for S- Chaplain Apollos. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, his, uh, Pastor Scott's uh, very informative and also at times entertaining Twitter feed is at Scott R4H, at Scott R4H. So I'd encourage you to check that out. Now, before we take your questions, we would like to take a moment to pray and uh, do a little update on what's going on in the world, and then we'll start getting to questions. Let's do that. Father, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to explore your word together. And Lord, even uh, some of the questions we've already received are uh, fascinating. And and Lord, I do pray that uh, you would give us the ability to be clear on what your word has to say, that we would be uh, led by your spirit to uh, edify, exhort, and comfort those who are tuning in, that there would be that clarity in uh, exhortation, in in exhortation uh, and and the application of your word that we are are so hungry to see worked out within our lives. Uh, God, thank you for your Holy Spirit being here to guide us into all truth. Uh, We love you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm hearing voices. Yeah. (laughs) You too. And I, and I muted everything, and it still unmuted itself. It's alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before we take our question, we have a leftover question from yesterday that we didn't get to, but uh, is there any updates on current events? Uh, yeah, let's just dive into the questions. A lot of stuff sort of percolating right now. We'll probably get to that tomorrow. Sounds good. Well, Adam yesterday asked, uh, heard, he said, I heard an idea that Balaam gets a bad rap. Main reason being he couldn't have been that terrible since God prophesied through him multiple times and seemingly met with him on command. What are your thoughts? Uh, Is is Balaam getting a bad rap? Well, I think the best place to start is where did that bad rap come from? It, uh, ironically enough, came from no uh, short a judge of character, I guess, than Jesus himself. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, uh, of the list of of things Jesus has against the church of Pergamos, he says that you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So Jesus equates Balaam to a false prophet, or at least a hindering prophet, someone who would set someone up for a fall. The reason for that is because, like everything else in the book of Revelation, it's a direct reference to the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, chapter 22, uh, 21 in particular, but 
or 22 and 24, uh, 22 notes Balaam's reputation as being someone who knew the true and living God outside of Israel. So apparently Abraham didn't keep his understanding of who God was to himself. But what's also interesting is that, as you rightly said, Adam, there is a reputation here of him, and I quote from, believe it or not, the same language as Genesis 12, whom you bless are blessed and whom you curse are cursed. Right. That's in verse 6. Now, what's interesting about this is what put Balaam in the false prophet category wasn't because he said anything false. In fact, that was the one thing that kept him from getting paid. He refused to, not once, not twice, but three times, say anything apart from what the Lord God said for him to say. And he had a, a pretty interesting Shrek-like interaction in order to verify that was going to be the case and no more. Now, when we're talking about Balaam's follow-through on this and the incident known as the uh, Moabite excursion, uh, there were women who came into the camp of Israel and stirred up relationships with the men, and in worshiping idols, that was specifically through the kind of thing that always gets an undisciplined man's attention, they were judged by God for something they knew would warrant the death penalty. Now, God knew where the smoking gun was, and it turns out that Balaam still wanted to get paid. Since he couldn't prophesy, speak in the name of God, a curse against Israel, he instead gave Balak, the king of Moab, advice. He said, instead, you can get them to curse themselves. What you got to do is, again, get these guys to uh, engage with these idols. Their God will curse them for you, and everything will be in your favor. His concern was not that Israel was a threat to him, but he assumed, he imagined there was a possibility that Israel could one day invade his territories like he, they were with the Canaanites. And despite the fact that they had in writing the nations that they were going to attack and weren't, Balak took what we call preemptive war to heart declared spiritual war on Israel, and God answered back by judging them. And it mentioned specifically in that retaliation that it was because of Balaam's advice that thousands of people died. So through his wow. manipulations, they were held responsible. <clears throat> but also the people who did the manipulating were held responsible. That's what's important too. So this is what I guess ties it back to the real crux of the question. The incident with Balaam, Jesus's review of his life as a false prophet, or at least the not the kind of teacher you want at your church, the ones whose doctrines you don't want to embrace. Is it contrary when someone has a spiritual gift that they also have a absence of character? Does everyone who gets used by God automatically mean they have God's heart behind it? Well, I think... Um the answer to that question is pretty simple. Jonah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, here was a guy that, uh, you, you read the book of Jonah, everybody always gravitates towards the whale, right? Uh, the, the large fish, and uh, that's really what the book of Jonah is all about. Well, no, actually, uh, the large fish was God's way of dealing with a prophet who certainly didn't share God's heart. Uh, he saw the Assyrians, God called him to uh, preached to the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He saw the Assyrians rising in power. Israel was doing great at that time, by the way. They had a king named Jeroboam II, and they had expanded their territory almost to the same level that Solomon had 
during his particular empire. But uh, Jonah, being a prophet of God, saw that uh, materially everything was great, but spiritually horrible. Idolatry was just rampant in doing land office business. And Jonah put two and two together that uh, the Assyrians rising were going to be God's instrument to judge northern Israel. So he didn't want to go. He didn't want to share with them. Uh, you know, he didn't want to have anything good happen to them as a, uh, you know, good, uh, I, I don't know if he had a uh, uh, make uh, northern Israel great again hat on, but he was very patriotic and didn't want to see his northern kingdom go up in smoke. So the idea that God would communicate to him, go and preach against Nineveh and tell them they've got 40 days till they're overthrown, same language used to describe Sodom and Gomorrah, thought, man, that's, that's great. <laughs> let's, let's nuke Nineveh till it glows and shoot it in the dark. Uh, that way this enemy of Israel is going to be uh, dispatched. Well, God delivers Jonah back by whale ground when he tries to run away from this particular call. So he goes to Nineveh. What does he do? Uh, God said, uh, tell him, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he said, hmm. yeah, the, the bare minimum. And guess what happened? Uh, Nineveh repented. Uh, the, the people repented. Uh, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. The king repented, put on sackcloth and ashes, even commanded that cattle put on sackcloth and ashes to show God how sorry they were about their sins. Mm -hmm. Now, if you got Bessie the cow dressed up in sackcloth, <laughs> you're pretty. And it says, when God saw they had turned from their wicked ways, he relented and didn't do it. And the rest of the book of Jonah is Jonah pouting, sitting on the hill above Nineveh, hoping that God was come, going to come around to his way of thinking. Uh, but the book of Jonah ends uh, with an open-ended question. You know, you had compassion on this provision of shade that I gave for you, and when it went away, you wanted to kill yourself. Shouldn't I have compassion on this great city Nineveh that have 120,000, the euphemism for children, <laughs> as well as many cattle? Uh, Jonah, if you can't have compassion on the people, think about the waste of livestock. Hmm. Do we ever know if Jonah came around to God's way of thinking? No. Hmm. You know, but God was waiting for Jonah to come around to his way of loving. So can somebody be used in a radical way by God, even though he, they don't share his heart? Absolutely. Jonah yeah, and, proves it. And can people with spiritual gifts still have an ongoing struggle with sin, even one that resulted in direct judgment from God? And the answer is absolutely. If we're going to do a modern example, and this is where people get kind of concerned about areas of study, uh, Ravi Zacharias and the scandal involving yeah, his yeah. death, does that mean that we shouldn't listen to any of his lectures? Does that mean we can't read any of his books? Does that mean that everything that God did through him is now invalidated because he had this double life behind the scenes? Well, the answer is a resounding no. Balaam's words are still in the Bible, including, by the way, his prophecy of the Messiah. Yeah. But truth from someone with less than moral character only shows that the God working through them is powerful. Likewise, if God wasn't working through Balaam, he'd be just as corrupt as any <clears throat> other pagan. But the reality is this. We all have a sin problem. We all have a sin solution. How much we take advantage of the latter mm. is up to us. I like whether, that. Yeah, whether it interferes with the efficacy of our spiritual gifts or not doesn't mean that we didn't do a legitimate work of God, mm. or rather didn't mean God did a legitimate work through us. That's the key. So when people get concerned about, well, are you sure this guy was a false prophet? Because look at all the good he did. Look at Charles Templeton. Does that mean that those people aren't saved? No, absolutely. They well, put does, their faith yeah, in Jesus. Yeah, I, I had a guy in the middle of the TV evangelist scandal uh, in the 80s 
come up to me uh, and he said he'd lost his salvation. I said, wow, how'd that happen? He said, well, I gave my uh, life to Jesus at a Jimmy Swaggart rally and now I find out that Jimmy Swaggart is living this double life and sleeping with prostitutes and all this other stuff, so I'm not saved. And I said to him, well, did you receive Jimmy Swaggart as your personal savior? <laughs> and he went, no. And I said, even though Jimmy Swaggart is no one to uh, model your life after, uh, if he shared God's truth, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You became a Christian, not because Jimmy Swaggart spoke to you, but because mm -hmm. God spoke to you. And many of these individuals started the race with good intentions. They may even have genuine faith, but uh, the limelight, the spotlight, the, the, sure. the plant died, whatever it may be. Doesn't Paul address this? Doesn't he say that there are those who preach the word of God for sordid gain? And then he responds by saying, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yeah, yeah. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, you know, the, the, having said that, it is really, really crucial uh, if you're going to get involved with any kind of ministry, right? Uh, there, there seems to be this trend nowadays because there's so many high-profile people uh, being exposed. Uh, Rob, Robbie Zacharias, the Hillsong stuff, all of these uh, different mega ministries seemingly uh, having feet made out of clay. And, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, don't look at me. Uh, you know, uh, I'm just a fallen sinful man. Uh, you know, you're kind of at fault for putting me up on this, this pedestal. Well, yeah, but the guy got up on the pedestal in the first place. Uh, you know, we're told, let not many of you become teachers, James says, for as such you'll incur a stricter judgment. God loves his flock and cares deeply for them. And when people in leadership start playing fast and loose, with the truth, uh, you know, maybe start believing their own PR or start believing that the rules don't apply to me or, you know, in the case of one guy being able to uh, tell a woman, David had lots of concubines, so you can sleep with me and it's no problem. Uh, you know, the, the, the bottom line is God takes that really, really seriously. And, and I think anybody that's going to be involved in any kind of Christian leadership role, and, and this applies to someone that is teaching you know, a, a small Sunday school class, a uh, business brunch Bible study, uh, you know, a, a pastor, a, an individual that's on the radio, uh, someone that has a podcast, even somebody who shares their takes, say, and uh, tweets on X, X, that, that, that platform there, always reminds me of Sean Connery. Anyway, <laughs> uh, anybody that does that sort of thing should have as their desire uh, not to allow their life to discredit the message that they're sharing. Uh, you know, I love what 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Boy, that last line's pretty powerful, isn't it? Uh, you know, what we should do is not set ourselves up to have people look at us instead of Christ, but to have people see the difference that Jesus makes within our lives and then point them to Christ, but be an example to others, uh, not an excuse to discredit the whole Christian message. Right. Um, I don't see any questions coming up right away, so I actually want to give you a bit of a layup. You mentioned on the message yesterday that in Ezekiel chapter 31, there was a reference to a tree 
being cut down and picture of Egypt, of course, but that it was a interesting, not only parallel, but outright <laughs> reference to a parable that Jesus gave about the mustard seed tree. You said during the message that you just didn't have the time to go into more detail, I but you not. wanted to. I did. Could yeah. you? Could I? <laughs> well, that is kind of a layup. Uh, you know, th this uh, parable that Jesus taught is uh, one, I think, of the most misunderstood parables that I think I've ever seen. Uh, Chuck Smith always used to say that a uh, Bible college teacher of his said that no pastor should attempt to teach the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 until they've been in ministry. How long? Like 30 years? Yeah, about. Something like that. I don't qualify. Uh, yeah, so um, suffice to say, when you get into the parables, uh, you're getting into some pretty deep spiritual water. Uh, and the parable of the mustard seed, I think, is a great example of this. This is found in Matthew 13 and verse 31. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, <laughs> this is a pretty fascinating parable and it always puzzled me because I grew up in Southern California where you've got mustard plants that grow every uh, spring. Uh, they, they cover the hillsides. And, and the thing about mustard seeds and mustard plants are this, they, they don't grow to the size of trees. They, they grow to be about, oh, you know, six to eight feet high. They're, they're bright yellow uh, when they first uh, bloom. In the spring, uh, they just transform uh, the landscape. They're just incredibly beautiful. But none of them in and of themselves are much to look at. Now, what we see described here has, is a uh, picture of a mutant mustard plant. Because Jesus talks about this mustard seed. When it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 31, it's very interesting. Uh, the, the image that is painted in this passage is an image that is meant to be a wake-up call to Pharaoh, a, an image of an incredibly powerful and beautiful empire called the Assyrian Empire. Now, we talked a little bit about that in the analogy about Jonah. The Assyrians were the ones who dominated the Middle East, ended up conquering the northern ten tribes of Israel and sending them into captivity. Um, you know, Sennacherib and, and these famous uh, Sargon, uh, these, these the individuals second, yeah. that, uh, that, that we see uh, whose uh, images are still preserved in, in archaeology and architecture and so forth. You go to the British Museum, uh, you can uh, read all about Sargon II's conquests and, and so on. Yeah, and the, the point that uh, uh, Ezekiel was emphasizing was every excuse that the Pharaoh would have to think, oh, I won't be judged by God, I won't be taken over by Babylon, Assyria could brag, and yeah. yet they were the first to fall. Yeah, and they were beautiful, they were spectacular, God had planted them, God had blessed them, and what God was saying to the Pharaoh of Egypt is this, uh, don't get cocky because it's going to get rocky. Uh, you know, this happened to Syria, and Syria was one of the most outstanding empires the world had ever seen as far as its dominance goes and all of this. Uh, the Egyptians were probably saying, well, you know, 
Um, yeah, but we've been around for 2,000 years and we built the pyramids. And, and so, you know, that's, that's not going to happen to us. But God said, look, learn a lesson by looking at what happened to Assyria. They had everything going for them and I chopped them down. They're nowhere now. They're, they've been exterminated. Uh, the Babylonians came in and wiped them out. Well, the same thing's going to happen to you. Uh, and, and the interesting thing about this incredible picture of Assyria being like a, a plant that was so lush and so beautiful, uh, God said it was, it was more spectacular than the trees of Eden, uh, the, the, this, this image of this, this empire. And God specifically says it's the, the uh, Syrian empire. Is he makes the statement that the birds of the air and the beasts of the field came to nest in its branches. Said the same thing about King Nebuchadnezzar Daniel in Daniel four. chapter four. So when we see this picture in Matthew, uh, you know, I've seen very well-meaning people say, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed and it's gonna be so wonderful, it's gonna have a worldwide impact. That's what the mustard seed's all about. But when you take a look, at the parable that preceded the parable of the mustard seed. What was it? Leaven. No, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Leaven was after. Yeah. But all so, bad pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the picture of the wheat and the tares all about? Well, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares, which was a noxious weed called darnel, looks just like wheat until it's full grown, doesn't produce any grain can't tell the difference till it's full grown that's what oh. a tear is all about so some enemy wanted to terrorize this guy by sowing in uh these tears among the wheat and the problem with tears is they take up the good soil they take up the moisture they don't allow the wheat to be able to grow to its fullest uh, potential it says uh but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop the tears also appeared so the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have tares? He said, I'm an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in a bundle to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, Jesus goes out of his way to explain the parable of the wheat and the tares. Yeah. Uh, you know, he says that the good seed, uh, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field's the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. So what Jesus is illustrating, and you mentioned the, uh, the, the parable of, of the yeast or the leaven, uh, the idea of leaven in the scripture is not a positive. Leaven is always a byword for corruption or evil because when you take leaven, yeast, you mix it into bread, the yeast dies and gives off a gas which allows the bread to rise as it's cooked. So, uh, you know, when we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you know, or that, that matzah was unleavened, it was a picture of purity. It was a picture of the fact that Messiah would be absolutely pure when he came. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Uh, he was referring to matzah in that situation. No yeast, right? So what Jesus is saying in these parables is really fascinating. What he's saying is, uh, before I come, you're gonna see the kingdom of God start out the way it was supposed to. There was a great book called The Mustard Seed Conspiracy. 
mm-hmm. uh, that talked about how God's plan to reach the entire world was one heart, one life at a time. And when you see how mustard plants grow, not one of them individually is spectacular, but together they cover a whole hillside and just change the way everything looks at it. One mustard plant at a time. Well, this mutant mustard plant, where the birds of the air come and nest in its branches, carries the picture of the fact that although Christianity would start on this individualized basis, there would be individuals who would come along and say, wow, this could be something we could use to bind up an empire. Wow, we can uh, use this to really create an, a massive organization. Uh, you know, the story is told about Thomas Aquinas being given a tour of the Vatican by the Pope of his day. And the Pope of his day said, well, Thomas, look at all of these treasures and these works of art. Uh, we can no longer say silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas said, yes, but we can no longer say stand up and walk either. Hmm. And so, you know, when we see, you know, mega ministries get going and then the leaders of these mega ministries uh, stumble and fall, shouldn't really surprise us. You know, big is not necessarily best. Not that God can't use a large ministry to reach and touch a lot of people, but we have to be very, very careful because uh, along with this comes what's called the three-generation rule. When a real move of God gets going, it's always grassroots, if you will, mustard seed level, uh, and, and it has a tremendous impact. After the first generation is used in that way, it's interesting how the second generation comes along and sort of claims the, the goodies that the first generation was able to build up as a part of this movement, like the buildings and the facilities and the media outreaches and so on. And they maintain what the first generation did. Then after the second generation, the third generation comes along, shares none of the spiritual convictions of the first generation, but they inherit the name and they inherit all the goodies and they inherit all the money and all of this stuff. It's the lesson of church history. No work of God lasts more than three generations. Hmm. Secret of life, always make sure you're part of a first generation work of God. Uh, So uh, you asked me about the parable of the mustard seed. Too often I've seen this as as sort of a how-to. Boy, we need to have such an outstanding organization going here that uh, the world's gonna sit up and take notice because we're so big and bad. Despite it using language not just used once in the major prophets, but twice in Ezekiel and Daniel of it being a political figure who was judged by God for his pride. Yeah, and corruption, so. So they would have understood that. We look at it, if we don't have a Old Testament history, or at least glance at it, yeah. uh, we, w- we would miss it, and we would think it's a positive, but it's actually a negative. Well, and it, even in when it's sandwiched between two pictures of evil. Well, and, and I hope I don't pull a muscle jumping up in my soapbox here, but there are major evangelical spokesmen with far-reaching ministries who say things like, you've got to unhitch your your New Testament Mm -hmm. faith from the Old Testament. I would submit you cannot understand the New Testament faith without the Old Mm -hmm. Testament. You can't understand the first verse of the New Testament without the Old Testament. I remember (laughs) my apologetics prof, he held up a Bible in a box, and it was cut in half, and he said the problem with American evangelicalism is they're only teaching half the Bible. Yeah. The idea that we're ignoring the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, when the, uh, the common gripe uh, about the book of Revelation being incomprehensible comes up, uh, the, the easy response to that 
is how in the world can you understand the 66th book of the Bible if you don't understand the previous 65? Mm-hmm. And uh, what, book of Revelation, 404 verses? How many Old Testament quotations and allusions are there in the book of Revelation? At least 300. At least. So if you don't understand these things, well, no wonder the message is going to be a mystery to you. The thing I love about the book of Revelation is that every passage you find in it is either explained in the book of Revelation, has been explained in the book of Revelation, is about to be explained in the book of Revelation, and all the symbols and images that we find in there that are not explained are explained in the Old Testament. So you want to understand where we're going, you you know, you've got to look at the Bible as a whole. All 66 books equally divinely inspired. When Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When he used that word scripture, what was he referring to? The Old Testament. First 39 books of the Bible. Hmm. Now, again, Paul's writings were called scripture by Simon Peter. Uh, The eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, obviously, they're on a level with the Old Testament because they check out, they verify each other. But, uh, but boy, to say, uh, boy, you should never wander farther south of that Matthew Malachi line because you're just going to get confused. Hey, get a study Bible. You know, get uh, the Word for Today study Bible, for instance, by Chuck Smith. Really super easy to follow along with. Don't have to be a PhD in theology to be able to do that. Mm. Um, go through, you know, like, for instance, we offer, you know, our verse-by-verse teaching through the Word of God online. Uh, but if you really just want to get a, a grasp on the Old Testament, two resources I'd highly recommend. Number one, J. Vernon McGee's Through the Bible broadcast. Uh, you can go online at throughthebible.org. Still up there. You can, you can go through the Bible uh, in five years, my beloved. Why five years? It's a long book. No, but, uh, but it <laughs> won't take you five years because five years was based on half-hour radio programs. You can take in as much as you want. The other one uh, resource I'd recommend is Chuck Smith's uh, C3000 series where he goes through the entire Bible verse by verse and uh, very easy to listen to. Sean and I have listened to some of the books while we've been traveling on I-10 between here and California. Great way to make uh, the time going by but you know you're going to get that overview and if you don't have that overview uh, you're going to end up being confused you're not going to understand these things or misinterpret these things or listen to some guy with the tweed jack and the elbow patches puffing on a pipe saying well you know I know that the parable the mustard seed is the uh, the gospel is going to impact the whole world in a great and tremendous way well is the gospel going to go to the whole world yeah it's going to have a worldwide impact yeah that's not what's being taught there Speaking of that, I, I, I screenshotted a, an X post, a tweet, just for you, and this is the perfect moment to share it because it in, goes along with what you just said. Okay. It was an advertising, an advertisement for Israel Institute of Biblical Studies. And it says, you might read your Bible religiously to the point where verses have become in, etched in your memory and are easily recited from the heart. But until you read your Bible in Hebrew, you won't be able to unlock the secrets of its meaning. Oh boy. Join our biblical Hebrew course today. I, I, <clears throat> Red flag. Red flag. <laughs> I, I had to I had to say that there's gonna be a moment 
where we're going to talk about Bible study, and I'm going to I'm going to share this screenshot. I thought that was a good moment. Is there? I mean, that's a stretch to say that if you don't have a handle of the original language, you can't understand the Old Testament. Well, that's a lie if we're just talking about communication. Now, it, it helps in, say, debate, if someone's going to say, well, the Hebrew says, and they don't know what they're talking about, but they can hide behind that barrier. Mm. It's easy to break it down if you know the language. There's some nuance in communication that can be delivered through understanding some of the ways that the Hebrew language expresses certain things, maybe even helps with some of the quote-unquote Bible contradictions when you see for example, the discrepancy between Solomon having such and such a number of stables and others is literally like the bottom third half of the line and then an X that it would look like in the English language, making the difference between the numbers. You can see how the typo happened. But when it comes to understanding any passage of the Bible in its proper context, you study the languages. I'm still learning my Greek. Is it true that you can't uncover the secrets, secrets of the unseen realm without being a Hebrew scholar. Are there hidden secrets of meaning hidden in the language? Well, we don't know? put it this way, there's a reason why it's really important for someone who's going to be in pastoral ministry to be conversant with the languages. It really helps with study. Back in my day, uh, <laughs> where, you know, I, my, my feet would be hot from pedaling my Flintstone mobile to go to uh, class, uh, you got to watch out for those dinosaurs, too. Uh, you know, the Flintstones was a TV show. We, we, we had to, <laughs> like, go to the library and check out books and read books to find out the meaning of particular words or, or to explore, you know, say, what scholars would say about a particular passage and all of that. No more. Uh, it's all right here. Uh, I mean, you can go online and go to a reputable source like, uh, for instance, biblehub.com, I think is a great, great resource. And you can do work in the original languages. Uh, they have not just, you know, like a, a parallel version of the Hebrew and the English, so you can see how the passage is laid out. But they also have what's called a lexicon, Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, which talks about the meaning of different Hebrew words and the nuances behind them all. Uh, having said that, though, uh, you know, I have a three-year de uh, degree in biblical languages and theology, my Master of Divinity degree. I would not call myself in any way, shape, or form a uh, linguistic scholar, but I think I know well enough uh, and been trained well enough to be able to use the languages in terms of being a pastor who cuts the Word of God straight, okay? which, which I think is an awesome thing. But having said that, Here's a dirty little secret. It, I have yet to find a single passage in the Word of God whose understanding uh, would be completely hidden from you unless you were conversant in the original language. Even the passage we talked about, the parable of the mustard seed, um, it, it's not being conversant in the Greek or the Hebrew that tells you what that, that's all about. It's seeing the image that Jesus was portraying in its biblical context in English. Just by knowing. Do, do, doesn't lose anything in the English. Just yeah. by knowing the Bible. Yeah. Would it be fair to say then <clears throat> that those who have a deep understanding of the original languages that the, the scriptures were written in and say things like the mysteries or you don't know this because you don't know the original languages, isn't that sort of, is this a stretch? Is this a sort of 
modern version of Gnosticism that, oh, you don't have the secret, because it says unlock the secrets of its mysteries. Well, <laughs> well, whenever I hear this stuff come up, and Sean, I'll let you comment on it here in a sec, but I get worked up about all of this. Uh, I always go back to Proverbs chapter 8, which was written in Hebrew, um, but this is what that Hebrew said. Uh, verse 8, all the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Um, you know, some people say, well, do you take the Bible literally? Uh, well, as a piece of literature, how else am I supposed to take it? I mean, that sounds almost jokey, but there's meaning behind that. Like any other piece of literature, we don't read into the Bible, we read out of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we ask those, those basic questions they taught us in journalism school uh, about uh, how to report on a story, who, where, what, when, why, how. You look at a passage like that, you look at the passages that preceded it, you look at the passages that come after it, you look at the kind of literature you're talking about, the kind of book, when it was written, where it was in the flow of God's revelation, you can understand the message of the Bible. Yeah, we call it, it inductive Bible study. It, yeah, it, it's not opaque. It's not intended to be hidden from you. Mm. The book of Revelation isn't the book of concealment. It's the book of Revelation. <laughs> Apocalypse, <laughs> not Apocrypha. And that's yeah. the funniest thing I've heard. The book of Revelation is not a book of concealment. Yeah. <laughs> what it says, <laughs> Revelation. Revelation. It reveals stuff to you. <laughs> so God wants us to understand that. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to have to do your homework, that you're not going to show, you know, endeavor to be a, uh, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word mm. of truth. You know, be diligent to do that sort of thing, you know? And, and if you uh, want to find God's truth, if you seek it, you're going to find it. That's why Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved. Right, yeah. right, exactly. So uh, when I see people say, uh, you know, oh, well, you, you don't understand this because you don't understand the Greek. Uh, my discernometer always goes off because that person's either being arrogant or deceptive and probably a little of both. Hmm. So don't let someone talk you out of the treasures of God's word because they think they've got to all figure out. Were you going to say something about this? Or? No, just clarifying for those of you who aren't in on the term, Gnostic is a early, early Christian cult that believed in hidden knowledge. Uh, think like the silent G in Gnostic. It's like gnome. Uh, it's that you only know these divine revelations and spiritual truths unless you have access to our specific, our scholars, our enlightened ones, our fill-in-the-blank. And, and again, just to repeat the point of emphasis, people who resort to that level of manipulation are the reason why we are losing our hair. Because when it comes down to it, they are doing more damage to the field of mm. apologetics and Christianity than others because of two reasons. First, it puts people who follow not necessarily are, that follow those individuals on that higher sectarian level. Well, I'm of Heiser. You know, I'm mm -hmm. of uh, Raul Reese. I'm of fill in the blank, right? Then you end up dividing fellowship between people who could just be serving the same purpose. But secondly, and even worse, they're lying when they say that the only way you would come at this is if you had my background in education. Mm -hmm. So make sure, like we said, someone says the hidden truths. Mm -hmm. The, you need this in the original language. If someone brings up the original language, and it's not, this is really cool. You probably get this, but let me show you really what this is communicating. 
That's fine. <clears throat> but if they say, now you wouldn't know this unless mm. you studied Hebrew, red flag. But one of the first uh, men who ever discipled me as a new believer <clears throat> was a seminarian, MDiv. Great guy, still great friends, Dana, world-class juggler. He cleared up the language's usefulness early on in my walk with God because he was going through it. And he said, and Scott, tell me if you think this is pretty accurate, that when you have an understanding of the original language, it's like watching a movie in color. Reading it in English is like watching the same movie, but in black and white. You have all the knowledge you need. There's just a nuance of detail that you might get by seeing it in color. Would you say that that's fairly accurate illustration? Yeah, I think that's a good analogy, although uh, I, I remember actually feeling almost physically ill when I saw uh, Ted Turner colorize uh, the movie <laughs> Casablanca. There, there, there's a, there's a, a real beauty, I think, to black and white in, in some uh, portraits and portrayals. Uh, but uh, I, I, that's, a, this, that's a movie quote. But yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, like, it's like saying, okay, um, you know, if I look at a particular passage and I understand it in English, can I understand the meaning? Yes. But original language can give us nuance and insight into that. For instance, uh, the choice of word for love in 1 Corinthians 13. I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I become a clanging symbol or sounding gong or clanging symbol. You know, in English, we have one word for love. And it's the same word I use to describe my relationship with my wife and how I might feel about a great hamburger. You know, I mean, it's, it's all context that determines what you're talking about here. Uh, Greek, they had five different words for love. And uh, the, the word chosen. Uh, by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul was the word agape, which meant self-sacrificing love, the, same, the highest kind of love that was possible in, in the nuance in Greek. So, you what know, when we... Huh? What's the fifth? Hmm? Storge, phileo, eros, agape. What's the fifth? I'll have to get to that in a second. Okay. So, but, but anyway, <laughs> what is the H? <laughs> yeah. there, there is a fifth, but I mean, it just gave me right at this moment. But uh, the, the, the bottom line, though, is that this idea of love, as we find it revealed in the original language, uh, you know, it's very helpful to find that out. Now, when you read it in context, you know, speak with the tongues of men of angels, but have not love. Uh, I'm a sounding brass or clanging cymbal, uh, though I uh, have a, uh, the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries, have a faith whereby I might move mountains, but have not love. Uh, I'm nothing, uh, though I present my body to, uh, to be burned and give all my goods to feed the poor, but have not love. It profits me nothing. You know, I'm not going to look at that and go, you know, I, I, I think he's probably talking about the same feeling I have when I have a good hamburger. You know, he's talking about a, a different kind of love than the average love that rolls down the street. Someone look at that, well, you know, obviously that's God's love. You know, that's not just yeah. warmth or human affection or or you know erotic love or things along this line it is definitely hmm. spiritual love that's in view there and you don't need to know say you know the difference between say the four loves as c.s lewis would say uh or uh, or you know you can just look at it in the context and discover this hmm. has got to be um a higher love if you will pardon the old steve winwood reference here uh, didn't jesus use 
different words for love when he asked Peter, do you love me? And he asked him the same question over and over again. Is there... that? That's a little bit too much read into the first guy that pointed that out was a well-intended, albeit bishop, but the point of emphasis that Peter kept using the term phileo, I like you a lot, and Jesus using agape and then changing to phileo as if he lessened his love to where Peter was at. It makes for a good sermon point, but the emphasis of the passage was that Jesus was denied by Peter three times, he was restored by Peter three times. I think the plain meaning is uh, in the numbers, not in the letters. Yeah. And, and But there, there was a nuance there, I think, that is acceptable. Uh, you know, Peter's just feeling so beat down and humbled at this point, you know, to say to Jesus, yeah, I love you back with the same kind of love. Um, I like, I think that's a little above my pay grade. Um, you know, I'll see. You know, you know, you know, I have affection for you, you know, and, um, you know, but, you know, whether... Uh, the nuance of the language there and uh, is the, the key. The, the thing is, Jesus' message to him didn't change. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Yeah. You know, well, he used a different word for sheep and lambs here in the translation. <laughs> I, got, I guess we could pick that apart. No, it's just you get the, the point. It is interesting, though, if Jesus says, do you agape me? And he goes, I phileo you. He's like, all right, good enough. Uh, feed my sheep. Yeah. Do you agape me? Well, I phileo you, but, uh, oh, well, then tend to my lambs. You know, if you really do, uh, I think there is kind of an interesting, like you said, Sean, a sermon point there. Well, I think he, you know, it says he was troubled because he asked him the third time. He didn't say he was troubled because of the nuance of the word that he chose. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think he was troubled because it was all coming back to him. The three denials, Jesus giving him the opportunity to reaffirm his love three times. Necessary but painful ground that Peter had to tread through. It'd be interesting to do a word study on the first uh, century usage, Jewish usage of the word agape. Like when would they use it and how, what would it mean to them as opposed to what Jesus, how he would have used it. That's yeah. Interesting. But, yeah. Well, we have a good question from Rob the Truth. How should I respond to someone who accuses Israel of violence against Palestine? Saw someone accuse Israel of occupying Palestine and make a comparison to the Nazis. Yeah, don't they always? Um, when it comes to any statement that you hear, first of all, on the internet, but also especially in this generation about Israel, it doesn't mean that they're sinless, but nine times out of eight, it, they're probably lying. Now, the reason I say that isn't because I'm rabidly pro-Israel. It's because every single time they come up with a story, they aren't even creative anymore about them trying to cover up the truth or demonize the Hebrew people. Uh, for example, this is an article uh, on the BBC, believe it or not, that took place just six days ago. Um, the BBC reported, quote, on Friday, armed Jewish settlers attacked a Palestinian village where a young Palestinian man was shot dead. And then it goes on to note, on Friday night, extremist settlers went on a rampage in a Palestinian village in the West Bank, killing a 19-year-old man. Israeli police say two settlers have been arrested. So here, you're just reading the BBC, we would conclude what? That there was a outright terrorist attack by the IDF, or at least by Israeli citizens, on Palestinians just minding their own business. Only problem with that, actually three problems with that, is the Palestinians that were shot were going on a knife-stabbing spree. They were in Israeli territory, and they were attacking Israeli citizens, not just Hebrews, but Arabs as well. 
Now, the IDF defending their nation is pretty much the trend that you see whenever these reports of violence come out, that they defend themselves after a terrorist attack. They were show videotapes of the dead bodies after the failed terrorist attack, like the other 5,000 they've tried. And then they report, see what those horrible Jews did. They're fighting back. That's usually where this ends up. Now, there have been incidents where the Israelis definitely overstepped their bounds. We don't say that they're infallible. But when those reports come up, just like anything that you hear in the name of God on this program, check it out because, again, like I said, more often than not, it's an outright lie, if not just a distortion or hiding of the truth. The fact of the matter is we are going to see this more and more because, as was prophesied, the nation of Israel in the last days is going to be a pot of stumbling and uh, drunkenness, literally. It's going to remove rationality from the nations that try to take hold of it. Wow. And while there is a blessing for those who bless Israel, universally we're going to find more and more that the nations will be cursed as a result of them cursing Israel. We not only see our elected representatives, but also those individually buying into this rhetoric, and we need to make sure not is said among us. When we're also told about these sort of incidents, it's important to note that just because something is done by Israel, it doesn't discount the fact that they are in a situation that is predicated on fraud and persecution founded in the Islamic religion. For example, when we're talking about the Palestinian people group, they're not a people group. They never existed as a people group distinct or exclusive to the territory we know as Israel because of them having some sort of historical ownership to it. It was a territory that passed many hands throughout the ages, both Islamic, Greek, and not. But what's interesting about it is the term Palestinian as an ethnicity didn't exist until it was drafted by the KGB in Moscow when the most prominent uh, Yasser Arafat, I believe his yep. name was, uh, had his birth certificate drafted when he was 40. Take that in for a minute by the KGB in order to orchestrate an attack on the West to victimize them and make them into a propaganda stunt for their Soviet interests in the Middle East. They found Afghanistan didn't work, so they thought they could destabilize Israel. But the point of emphasis is just this. Where did the term Palestinian come from? Historically, it was an insult in reference to a culture and an ethnicity that had been dead for around 600 years at the time that the Romans finally got tired of dealing with uprises in the region called Judea and renamed it after the Philistines, who were wiped out to a man by Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century, the king of Babylon, in case you're wondering. Now, what's interesting about the renaming is that, like I said, it passed many hands. You had Jewish settlers here and there because of their ties to their ancient home and history. But when the Arabs, I don't say Muslims, I say Arabs, took it over in the mid-6th century, there's no record or reference to this being an exclusively ethnic people group or location that was inhabited by Arabs. There were Greeks, there were Romans, there were Hebrews, there were a lot of different people groups in this area because of either religious or cultural significance. There's also an important thing to note that when the Muslims took it over eventually under their banner, it ex also exchanged hands from the Ottomans, the um, Umayyad Caliphates, and plenty of others throughout the centuries. Islam's not a unified dynasty, as many of them would like us to believe. So the point needs to be understood there, Rob. If you have a love for the truth, like your username says, 
check out whenever an accusation is made against Israel because there's a literal spiritual investment in this world to demonize the Jewish people for one reason. God loves them. And two reasons are two reasons for the yeah. demonization yeah. of Israel is the fact that God used them to bring the Messiah into this world. Mm. The enemy hates them, and those that share his heart hate them as well. Don't let that be said of you. Yeah, um, you know, Israel's uh, had a very interesting history. It became a sovereign nation in 1948, largely because of the bad conscience the nations had as a result of the Holocaust. Uh, you know, there, there was movement in this direction, but there was obvious resistance because of uh, the feelings of the Arabs around them. Well, when the United Nations officially acknowledged Israel's existence, uh, Israel's neighbors attacked it, seeking to destroy it. Uh, this was the War of 1948 that not a lot of people hear about. Well, again, Israel defeated the armies of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq during that particular war. Then, after the fighting ended, uh, Israel stayed within the borders the UN set for them until 1967, when Egypt and Syria and Jordan and Iraq attacked again with help from other Arab nations. This was the Six-Day War. Israel again defeated these attackers. After this conflict, Israel seized control of the West Bank, as it is called, the West Bank of the Jordan River, that is west from Jordan, that used to control that piece of territory, and East Jerusalem, the Sinai Peninsula and Gaza they took from Egypt, the Golan Heights from Syria. Ever since then, Israel has been offering to the Arabs around them land for peace. The reason that Gaza has turned into a staging ground uh, for missile attacks on Israel is because Israel gave it back uh, to the Palestinians to have as part of their homeland. So, you know, when someone says that Israel are the bad guys and so on, I think it comes down to this. If uh, Israel were to uh, lay down, or if the Arabs were to lay down their weapons in the Middle East, there'd be peace. If Israel laid down their weapons, there'd be no Israel. Well said, and thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed, and if you uh, want to join us again, we'll be here same place, same time tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.